Nation Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the Combination Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Groceries through Instacart, delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. Recorded live. And welcome to episode 187 of the Michigan Sports Truth Post Game Edition on Talk Shoe. I'm Taylor Phillips along with Lewis Tenar and, and our co host for tonight, Buck, G- Buck Gino III. How are you doing tonight, Buck? Good. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it and uh, look forward to talking a lot of different topics with you. Very exciting night, uh, especially in Big Ten basketball. Yeah, especially for the Michigan Wolverines. They just uh, clobbered the Indiana Hoosiers 90-60. to 60. Lewis, how are we doing tonight? We're doing good. I, I saw the score. Oh, boy. Wow. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Buck Gino was another uh, follower of uh, Jeff Moss and the Detroit Sports Rag on Twitter at Jeff Moss DSR. You can follow Buck Gino on Twitter at, at Buck Gino III. That's Buck Gino the third. You can follow me on Twitter at DT2Phillips. Like our Facebook page, The Michigan Sports Truth, and join our Facebook group, The Michigan Sports Truth. Well, um, Michigan only turned the ball over six times. They played very consistent basketball. They took care of the ball. And they shot a red-hot 63.3%. They were all over the Hoosiers. Uh, in, in that game, they beat them by 15 points each half, 50 to 35 in the first half, 40 to 25 in the second half. It was uh, it, it was just like uh, like fair domination, I might say, if not if not uh, super domination. The Hoosiers turned the ball over 16 times. It was, not much of a rebounding contest, but uh, a close one still, 23-20 to 20 in favor of Michigan. They also shoot uh, 55% from three compared to the Hoosiers' 53.8. Hoosiers finished 54.5 overall. And uh, Michigan just uh, gave Indiana a dose of their own medicine, like you uh, mentioned to me before we went on the air, uh, just a little bit earlier tonight, Buck, uh, in Twitter messages, the same dose of medicine that Indiana gave Michigan State this past weekend. Uh, Yeah, I mean, you you look at the the box score for this game, and the one thing that jumps out at me, the three-point percentage for Indiana, still over half of their three-point field goal attempts went in. So when you talk about the rebounding battle, when you're shooting that well, on both sides of the floor, there's not a lot of rebounds to be had, but the thing that kind of disturbs me when you look at it is they're shooting from inside the arc. And Indiana, a team that over this course of the season is really a team that's defined by their first 10 minutes. In the first 10 minutes, you kind of know what you're going to get with them most nights. And tonight, uh, over the first 10 minutes, Michigan came out hot and really put the, the screws to Indiana, and they just couldn't match them basket for basket and then got a little desperate. There wasn't really any foul trouble to speak of. 
um, for Indiana or Michigan. So a really cleanly played game, which I really enjoy. Uh, a lot of the college basketball games that I've seen this year have been kind of bogged down by trips to the free throw line with some of the new points of emphasis that the NCAA has put on some of the outside contact uh, on offense. But overall, I think that Indiana just really could not match Michigan's shooting for tonight, and then they got behind early, and then from then they were working from behind. And Michigan, like you mentioned, they did not have a lot of turnovers. They took care of the ball very well, and that's going to be a real key for them coming into this next five-game stretch because they're playing a very tough slate. They've got Michigan State twice. They've got Ohio State in there as well. And they're going to have to take care of the ball against those teams because those are teams that are going to be more physical, especially down low in the lane and inside the arc. That's going to be – they're going to have to be a point of emphasis for them. Don't make the turnovers. Make sure you take care of the ball because if you can shoot that well or at least somewhat close to that well, you're going to be in those ball games. And I think that John Beeline is going to be very happy with the results tonight, obviously, but he's got to be telling his team, if we can still take care of the ball that way, we're going to be in a lot of games. And I think that's been the one thing that Michigan has struggled with is taking care of the ball on the whole for this season. And tonight we saw what they can do when they're able to take care of the ball. And they took care of the ball uh, a lot better tonight than they have most of the season. So they're going to be put to the test at uh, Michigan State Sunday at 1 in East Lansing on CBS. The Wolverines and the Spartans uh, – one flaw that, that I see in the Michigan State Spartans is their free throw shooting. Plus they plus they turn the ball over too. The Wolverines will just have to uh, weather the uh, the is own storm on the road. But I'm pretty sure they they might uh, take advantage of some of some uh, turnovers by by the Spartans uh, committed by the Spartans and um, try to get some. Uh, rebounds off, off miss especially off missed free throws by MSU, but um, Miles Bridges and Nick Ward are the two uh, players to watch. Yeah, I also think that one of the the key guys that are going to be coming up in that game, you're going to have to look at Josh Langford. I don't know who Michigan's going to want to to match up with him. Maybe Beeline decides to to try a little zone because outside shooting really for for the Spartans has been pretty hit and miss. Uh, not, no pun intended there, but, uh, you know, the field goal percentage, okay, but you're right, that 63.7 free throw percentage, especially for a team like Michigan State where Tom Izzo traditionally is coached a physical contact style of basketball, especially in the paint, and you've got to make your free throws because you're going to go to the line when you play for a Tom Izzo coach team, and if you're only hitting 63%, you're not doing your job. You look at some of the free throw percentages of, of the team or the team's top players. Nick Ward is at 55%. Miles Bridges is just a shade under 63, and, and you've got some other guys. Um, Josh Langford at 63.5%. Cassius Winston at 66%. So those guys have got to step it up, and I think that if they can get that going early, it's going to give them some confidence. And also, Michigan's not going to be able to play as aggressively on defense. I think there's a real correlation between teams playing aggressively on Michigan State right now because there's not a penalty for them to send them through the free throw line right now. And traditionally that's been not the case for the Michigan State Spartans. Tom Izzo always, as two teams, usually have a very high free throw percentage. And I think that's just something that's really hit them hard this year. 
it's not it's not something that the defenses shy away from because they might get out of that trip with one or maybe even zero points and get to take the ball back up the floor. So I think the free throw battle is going to be key, as you mentioned. I think another thing for Michigan State playing at home, too, you mentioned the zone and, and trying to get the, the crowd back into it. It's been a relatively lukewarm crowd a lot of times at Breslin. But I think if they can get the momentum going early, it's going to. you look at that first five to ten minutes, if Michigan can weather that storm, stay within a couple of baskets or even have the lead after those first 10 minutes, then we've got ourselves a ball game. But if Michigan comes out flat, missing shots, not winning the rebounding battle, it's going to be a long afternoon for them. Mm-hmm. That, that's true. So uh, I, I think, I, I believe Michigan will uh, come back, come out on top of uh, Michigan State. And uh, Ed Smith and I are going to preview that on episode 249 on Spreaker of the Michigan Sports Truth. Uh, Ed, we, we know Ed, Ed Smith is a, a big Michigan Wolverine fan. Uh, he lives uh, somewhere in the uh, greater Detroit area right now. Um, he's, he's, he's a, he, support the, he supports the Wolverines, but he's uh, very intelligent. But, but uh, that's that's why he's on on my Spreaker podcast. <laughs> well, when you look at the teams, the, the, the support they get, you kind of have to take it a lot with a grain of salt because you have a lot of people on the fringes on both sides. I mean, I experienced it a lot during football season this year. Um, you look at a lot of the people on that fringe. You get the, the fringe Michigan State fans that are looking to fire D'Antonio halfway through the season and you get the fringe Michigan fans who couldn't handle three losses in the last four games. Um, you you got to take the body. Especially of the I think, <laughs> right. Well, that'll send a lot of people into a tailspin, especially with the way they lost. But you look at the, the body of work, and I look at back at two years ago. I, I, I was sitting there watching the Ohio State game before I went to the state finals and did our broadcast there um, for the MHSAA uh, Division Five final that w- we were on. And you're just looking at two years ago around that time, the, the program was rudderless. There was no direction. And in two years, they've gone from irrelevance to, I wouldn't say really contender, because they haven't been able to, to showcase their skills on the big stage of the CFP or a Big Ten championship game. But you look at what they're where they're at, and it's going to be an interesting season coming up. But I think that they should be still a force to be reckoned with in the Big Ten. But you look at overall for Michigan State and Michigan, it's hard to get that bias out of there. And that's where you kind of look at numbers, and hopefully you can just digest the numbers instead of leaning on your allegiance, so to speak. And I think that Ed does a great job of that. I've listened to a couple with him on, and I think that it's really been a, a good balance for him because it's it's hard when you're the supporter of the team because a lot of people then try to discount your opinion, and and you have to fight against that. So he does a really good job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, now with all the uh, college talk out of the way, it's time to uh, talk some pros a little bit. Um, the way the Red Wings have uh, tried to come back until that four nothing drubbing to the to the Maple Leafs. Last night, um, 
some some uh, some of the media have predicted, including uh, Brad Galley and Bob Wanowski, that they they think that the Red Wing, the Red the way the Red Wings have uh, come back against the Boston Bruins to win in a shootout six to five. They were down four to one and three nothing before. It, 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 it's just, it's just, uh, just them typically jumping the gun and uh, just staying positive, like they always try to do, regardless of what what really goes on. It, it, it's just, it, it's just maddening. It, it's predictable, but it's maddening, continuously maddening, and um, it 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 just, uh, it just doesn't sit well with us. Well, I don't think it sits well with a lot of fans, Taylor. And I think that no. if you followed either one of us on Twitter and see what our history is, whether it be retweeting or tweeting or replying to tweets or subtweeting, any of those things that you look at, and those are really visceral reactions to what's going on, More, much less so than a, an article that you can edit and pour over before you submit it. The, the real thing that I get upset about, and I've been a Wings fan ever since I can remember, I think the, the real first memories that I have of watching them is the 92, or excuse me, the 91-92 conference um, semifinals versus Chicago when they got steamrolled by that Blackhawks team. They got all the way to the finals before they finally were swept aside by the Penguins. You look at this team historically, and you see success, but I really think since the cap era has dawned, back when the 2004-05 lockout happened, the Red Wings have been operating from a position of deficiency. What I mean by that is they've made mistakes, and to cover up for those mistakes, they've compounded them rather than fix them or count it as part of doing business. You see a lot of teams in the NHL right now and I don't know if you saw this tonight, you look at the Tampa Bay Lightning, just because people draw that parallel to the Red Wings from Steve Eiserman going to Tampa Bay after he was spurned for the GM job back in 2010. He went out and traded Nikita Nesterov today, which is a really surprising trade on the surface because Nikita Nesterov is a very good defenseman for them, uh, but he's young. He's looking at a restricted free agent contract coming up, and you look at how they're operating with the cap, they've put a lot of money in, and been very cap-heavy. But if you notice the teams that are successful, they have that. They have cap, they're have cap. they cap-heavy at the top, Chicago, Pittsburgh, um, a lot of those teams, San Jose even, very cap-heavy at the top, and then they get the mileage from the third and fourth line guys, or at least the bottom six as far as salary. And the Red Wings just have not grasp that concept or embrace that concept. You look at how they treat their players that they have. I mean, you, you have Jeff Blashill saying, I didn't like how Anthony Manta played last night. And then that is when BS that Jeff Blashill keeps spewing out a, uh, right. about Manta and Athanasiu. That's just a bunch of bull. They're always the same bullshit that uh, Blashill keeps spewing out that he disses Matha, he disses Athanasio and this and that, so on and so off, and he and he just uh, he just keeps 
keeps tiling the rest of like the rest of his players, like Glenn Denning, Shahan with zero goals and seven assists. Jonathan Erickson, who's a who he thinks he is a big force on defense. Jonathan Erickson and um, um, I think um, well, the Kaiser is in that mix too. Yeah, but Paul Paul Wood. Someone, someone on Twitter tweeted that Paul Woods calls those two a shutdown pair, quote-unquote. Uh, no, they're not. Jonathan Erickson, for example, is the biggest abomination on this roster. The, the, first, the first biggest abomination on the roster. Secondly, as usual, Justin Ablocator, who's not a defenseman. I mean... I mean, I get it. Advocator got got has picked up one assist in Buffalo, but that that's been it. Well, you look at the guys that you're talking about. Advocator has a talent, mm-hmm. but his talent is not that of a top six forward. You look at Erickson. You know, back in 2008, 2009, when they made those back-to-back finals, Erickson was their sixth guy. And he thrived in that role because he played limited minutes against usually lesser forwards, and he was good at that. And I think that the Red Wings have really lost focus of the difference between rewarding guys for their service versus making decisions that will benefit their team and the franchise. And I think that's where they've gotten off the track. You, you look at guys like Erickson and Ambulcator who have – serviceable talent. But Advocator, he's at best your third-line puck retrieval guy, and Erickson is your bottom pair forward, or it's bottom pair defenseman, excuse me. And that's the kind of stuff that really frustrates a lot of the, the, the Red Wings fans, including myself, is that you have people that are that can do things. You have people that are available to put in those spots. I think that in, for one stretch there, where it was Zetterberg, Manta, and Tatar, I mean, that was one of the hotter lines they had. And then, of course, they break it up. They take Tatar out. They put Nyquist in, and then he scores two goals in two games. So you look at what's being produced. You take those common denominators and say, boy, Manson and Zetterberg really play well together. We can put anybody we want on that other wing, and they're probably going to produce just by happenstance. They're going to be on the ice with those guys. And then you have the next week, Blashill saying, I I didn't like the way he played. Well, when you're moving him from the first to the fourth to the third to the fourth to the first line, he doesn't get any flow. You've got to leave him there for a while. And they really, and I understand you can't leave him there for 82 games, but you've got to give them some consistency. And then really, I think the top around the whole thing is giving preference to those guys that are not performing but have been a part of the franchise for so long. I mean, you've got Jonathan Erickson, you've got Nicholas Cronwall, who at this point is maybe an every-other-game player, and you've got Dan DeKaiser, who they're trying to force on the power play, and he's just not a power play guy. They're trying to justify their mistakes. That's the point I alluded to at the very beginning of this discussion. They're putting guys in position because they have to instead of cutting their losses and, and going in a different direction. DeKaiser is a fine bottom pair, second PK defenseman. He's fine doing that. But then you pay him $5 million a year, and then now he's got to be a top pair guy. Why? Because his 
salary dictates that same with Erickson. I mean, I mentioned it to you on Twitter. If they went with Jensen, Olat, Sproul, Marchenko, when Smith comes back from injury, him, and then Mike Green and uh, DeKaiser, as their seven, I'd be happy with that, and that would be fine. They don't need Jonathan Erickson to do anything. He doesn't do what they want him to do, which is play physically in front against some of the league's better forwards. He doesn't do that, and if he's not going to do that, he's not going to help your team. He doesn't. He's not on the power play. He's a liability on the penalty kill. He doesn't do what they need him to do, but because they've, had, they've put themselves in that position, they've now put themselves into a corner, and instead of cutting their losses and saying, all right, we need to really start to and, – and the whole thing I think they get tripped up on is the rebuilding thing. We've seen the comments in both the newspapers and Twitter and all, anything that you can really get your hands on. Ken Holland is, is locked into this thought process that a rebuild takes eight to ten years. And then he quotes that it's a, you know, Toronto's out of the playoffs now in the last ten years. He fails to mention that before Brendan Shanahan – and, and Dave Notice really took hold and got Lou Lamorello into the mix. They were run by a bunch of clowns. They didn't know what they were doing. A rebuild is going to take you that long when you don't know what you're doing. And all of a sudden, you have Nazem Kadri, who 12 months ago, people were trying to run him out of town on a rail in Toronto, and now he's a Selkie candidate. They don't, they don't have the patience to do it because they were hung up on that playoff streak. And because of that, they've really hamstrung themselves with a lot of these contracts and not playing the kids that are producing. If you look at the numbers, uh, you know, you go back to production. If you put those guys on the ice for larger sample sizes, yes, of course, that their, their paces will go down because that's just the nature of how things go. But you're talking about you want them to produce more, you want them to do more. Well, if they're on the bench, they can't do that. And I think that a lot of the times that when they say those things, that inflames the emotion for a lot of fans because after Nick Lindstrom left, people were okay with them really going into a, a real big rebuild. People were like, hey, th- this era is over. You know, we've got Datsuk and Zetterber. We can build around that. And, yeah, it's going to be hard for them. And maybe it's not exactly what they're going to want to do with the, the twilight of their careers, but – they go back to that loyalty. Well, we owe it to Zetterberg to, to try to make the playoffs. No, you don't. You owe it to him to not put him on a crappy team. You owe it to Pavel Datsuk, who left because you guys didn't want to do anything and he was already had his money and ready to run. You, you don't owe him anything. And you know, I think they really get caught up in that. And that was great back in the early 2000s when you could sign free agents at will with no cap or any other type of restriction. I mean, they got Brett Hall, Luke Robitaille, all those guys back in 2002. That was easy for them because there is no cap. But now, because you live in a cap world, they still operate in that mentality that hey, we've got to, we've got to, you know, really get it to veterans. We've got to show loyalty. That's how we get guys. There's no big free agents that anybody else wants at those prices that are signing with the Red Wings. And I think the real big eye-opener for a lot of fans was this year when they traded the Datsuk contract. They lose out on Jacob Chikrin. They pick a guy who is projected not to even play in the NHL for another two to three years. And then 
you know, they hand out these contracts like they did to Helm and to Kaiser, and people just wonder why they're doing that. And that's where a lot of the frustration centers upon is they, they were ready for a rebuild five years ago. It didn't happen. And instead of doing that now, they're in this position where literally, yes, it's going to be painful because they've put themselves there. And by some miracle, they've drafted well enough to fill a, a good top six with Larkin, FNCU, Tatar, Mantha, and you can have Zetterberg in there as, as your, your studying influence. But really, I mean, they've just, the roster is full of guys that just are paid way too much to do things that they can't do. And I think that a lot of the time that when they talk about these things, about, you know, needing to, to see more effort or needing to see more production from those guys, it, inf- it really makes people mad because you can't, you're telling us they need more production and they need to do this. And then you say you want to make the playoffs. Well, if you want to make the playoffs, which is probably a real foregone conclusion at this point that they're not, you play those guys that are producing. You don't put Luke Glendening on a stinking power play. You don't run Dan DeKaiser out there on a five-on-three power play. You play the guys that can best do that job. And I think that's really it's a real big issue. I think it's, it has a lot of different directions you can go, but what it boils down to is, that they hang on this playoff streak. They think it's, the, it's more important than making sure the franchise is in it for the long haul. And you, and, you have te- and you really just have all sorts of mixed messages and people saying one thing and then doing another. And I think that that's where a lot of the frustration comes from because I don't know who these people are that want them to continue the, winning streak or the playoff streak. Really don't know a lot of people that are, very few in fact but they seem to think it's a large portion of the fans. And I went to a couple or one Red Wings game this year, and it wasn't great weather, but the the building was half full. It was a game against Philly, and it's a real pivotal game for them. I mean, that's a a conference rival that they need to get points against, and nobody wants to show up because, you know, they're tired of this. And I think that that's going to be real key for them moving into a new arena next year they're going to have to play these kids. They're going to have to do it. Otherwise, they're going to be playing to a lot of empty seats. And I think that might be an eye-opener for them once that starts happening, or hopefully it's an eye-opener to them. I, I don't know where they go from here. Um, at this point, rebuilding is going to be real tough because it's going to be painful because of where they put themselves rather than just going through the process. You look at a team like Pittsburgh, they fired Ray Shero, who had taken them to two finals, got them a cup, and they had, and they fired him, and they fired their coach later and put Mike Sullivan in, and they were back in the finals within two seasons. Yeah, a little. It's it's cheating a little bit when you have Gino Malkin and Sidney Crosby, but the but the, the real story is that they they were able to do that. And I think that people look at that. I don't think it would take two years for the Red Wings to get to back to the level they were pre. 2010, you know, where, where Babcock was at his finest. But if they keep going the way they are now, they're going to get stuck in cap hell. They're not going to be able to move any contracts, and they're not going to be able to sign anybody with any significant money. And they're just going to be kind of floundering, maybe in the playoffs, maybe not. And they're going to waste the prime of th- three 
one of their best draft picks in the last six years. And I think that's really where, where people get frustrated is they, they hang on to that playoff streak. Like it, it needs to happen and people were fine with it not happening. And then, and I think that's where they really have misidentified where they need to go with this franchise. And I think that's where a lot of the frustration comes from is that the people just feel that they need to be be done with it. Just go ahead and rebuild. We're okay with it. And now that they're moving into a new arena, I mean, you look at a team like the New Jersey Devils, they got a new arena. They got the Prudential Center uh, a while back, and nobody was showing up. Why? Because their team stumped. And that's what happens when you finally get to the point where you can't make moves and you've got to fill your roster with just whoever is available. And that's that's what I see happening with them, kind of a New Jersey Devils situation where they might be – they're not going to be last, but they're not going to be first. They're going to be in that upper lottery hell where they're just not getting the number number one, number two, number three draft picks, and they're just going to have to hope to hit some home runs again like they did with Mantha and Larkin, and hopefully they can do that quick enough where – they can get back into contention. Yeah, and um, yeah, no, yeah, those fans have had enough. Like you mentioned, of the same old uh, Red Wings, like um, Abbotier, Erickson, Sheehan, um, Glenn Denning, etc. They're 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 pretty pissed off at Ken Holland himself because because of his uh, long-term contracts to uh, Advocator, Elm, to Kaiser. Instead of um, of uh, getting uh, Chikrin and uh, Chalowski calling he he didn't he never called him out. And and then um he let Jeff Blaschel uh degrade uh, Anthony Mantha and uh Andreas Athanasiu when they both kept proving themselves Yeah, exactly. And you you look at I'm looking at their their cap situation for next year. They have nine forwards signed next year. Zetterberg, Nielsen, Nyquist, Abdelkader. Well, I guess it's back to six because Franzen doesn't count. Uh, Darren Helm, Riley Shane, Dylan Larkin, and Anthony Manta. That's all they have signed. They have to pay. They're going to do something with Tomasztatar, Andreas Athanasio, and Thomas Yurko. And then Luke Glendon is also signed, so they, that is, I guess that is where I got my seven. But they're going to have to do something with those players. I mean, if you look at what they've got coming up defensively, they're relatively in good stead as far as contracts go. They only have to resign Xavier Olet. I mean, Nick Jensen, I don't know if he'll generate a lot of interest in the league just because of his size and relative inexperience when it comes to the NHL. The forwards, I mean, they've just really—they're—they're just—they don't have any room. I mean, they're gonna—they're gonna have to either a get rid of somebody that's already signed, and we've already seen that that's typically not gonna be the case. So at that point, it only becomes dealing away those guys that are restricted free agents under team control, 
and yeah. having to get rid of them or ho- or hoping somebody makes a trade offer for, for you that you can re, uh, capture some picks from them and, and start to get back some of the asset that you just lost by going back into the draft pool and taking that pick. But restricted free agency, there's not a lot of teams that are diving into that pool because the picks are so valuable. And I just don't see what, what their direction is going to be because they're going to have to pay these guys. It may not be top dollar because some of them, they can make bridge deals or at least give them short-term contracts and still keep them restricted. But they're going to have to do something because right now, I mean, you, you take the guys that are signed and it's not a pretty sight. And the other thing is when you talk about the draft picks, they have two guys and maybe three right now that they could trade and get relatively valuable assets for. Mike Green would be a fantastic trade option for a couple of different teams that are looking in the hunt, um, especially on the Western Conference side. Um, I think Edmonton and Vancouver both could benefit from his services. Vancouver's on the outside looking in right now, but they've made a push, and Edmonton is right there on the cusp. And, but it would be a real big boost for them and the franchise if they could even sneak into the playoffs. And it's not a team you really want to play with in the playoffs because of their young they're fast, and it's just a team that you don't want to have to deal with, especially in the first round. And with the way the playoffs are, I mean, everything's so tight now. I mean, they're not going to be at a real big disadvantage going into other teams' barns and, and playing that style of hockey. So um, if you've got Thomas Vanek on the forward side, you know, they talk about, well, we can't, we can't deal Vanek because we want to re-sign him. There's no rule that says that you can't trade him to somebody and then re-sign him next summer or this summer. There's not. And and that's the kind of narrative that really makes the fans, at least they, they are thinking, that that really gets them riled up is is that kind of that kind of stuff where you're saying, hey, we're not going to trade him because we're almost we're, we're a couple points out of the playoff race. Well, if you don't trade him now, you're going to get nothing because chances are he's not going to take another two point six million dollar deal from you. I mean, there'll be. A t- I mean, he is up there in age, but there'll be some team that probably could use him. He's going to be 33 next year, and he, you know, there's a team that probably could use him as what he's done for the Wings, which is a second line guy, power play guy, and and really he's proven himself to to have some gas left in the tank, and it's going to be kind of hard to get him back at that. Maybe not at that number. Um, but as far as contract length, he's not going to take another one-year deal with his performance this year. So it, it's a real bleak picture for them, and I really hope that uh, there's there's miracles that you hope can happen, but what it boils down to is they're, they're going to have to do something, and my fear is that they're going to try to, you know, they always talk about they're looking toward the, fu- the, the future. Well, when you're selling off assets, they're going to be part of that future to keep your streak alive. Again, it's that double talk, and that's that's where a lot of people just don't get it and really become upset with how this franchise has been handled over the past four or five years. You mentioned uh, restricted free agents and, and talked about them. Uh, Tomas Tatar being one of them. Uh, is uh, Ed Smith and I uh, went over uh, Tomas Tatar's uh, next uh, contract. And uh, let me see here. I can pull that up. There we go. Thehockeywriters.com. Guitar's next Red Wings contract. 
Tatar this season hasn't produced much, only four goals. Uh, actually, eight eight goals now. Um, he, he's done well as of late, but um, Tatar's uh, management team will likely it says here in the contract prediction, Tatar's management team will likely propose a five to six year contract, which would pay around 5.5 million annually. So at least a $30 million contract for six years for Tomas Tatar, averaging 5.5 million per season. First it said 5.5 and, and then it said five, just 5 million. It's, um, 30, like 33 million to be exact. But um, Tomas Tatar had uh, previously, uh, as of uh, December 12th of 2016, had 17.22 of time on ice, which ranked third among Red Wings forwards, up from 14.21 last season. And the Red Wings uh, value Tatar's talent. Let me uh, look at look at uh, Tatar's statistics right now. Yes. Yeah, I mean, if you look at his his stats overall, he hasn't had the best of years. I mean, last year, I think his his usage was a little bit less than optimal. Um, he ended up with 45 points. This year he's, he's on pace for roughly um, 35 points, which, you know, you look at spending $5 million on a guy that's going to get you that many points. I mean, he's he really had, he really did well. He did he did well in 2015, and that's where the, the, the two-year contract came from, and now it's coming up again. And, and you look at his point production, but that goes back to who is he playing with. When he's playing on the top line with other good players, he's produced, and I think that's the that's the real problem for the Red Wings is they have a lot of guys that are complementary pieces, and Tomas Tatar is one of them. I think he'd be a great second line winger, yeah, on a really good team. I mean, and I'm just going to throw out some teams just because, and not anywhere where I would think he would go. But you look at a team like a Montreal or um, you know a Chicago. Um, you know, teams that are looking for some scoring depth, he'd be a great fit on those teams because he doesn't have to be the number one guy. And they're looking to him to be a big producer. He has never done that. 15 was his big year, and he had 29 goals and 27 helpers, but he's not going to be your number one guy. And I know that NHL scoring is a little bit different than it was 10, 15 years ago as far as points and, and goals per game, but... He's just not going to be your first line winger, first line power play guy, and you know you'll have you'll have Ken Holland say, well, we can't pay. You know, if they don't re-sign him, which is a distinct possibility, or if we if they try to lowball him and he, and he ends up taking a contract less than his value, you look at you're going to pay Darren Helm next year, who has a career high of 13 goals in a season. You're going to pay him $3.85 million cap. He's going to get, next year, he's going to get four and a half. So you know he's got to get more than four and a half. Justin Ablicator is going to get five. You know he's probably got to get that or more. 
Gusev Nyquist is going to get five and a quarter. He produces a little bit better than Nyquist has over the season, so does he get more than that? I mean, that's where you look at how can you justify giving him a contract and because he's a restricted free agent, his, his free agency, his unrestricted free agency doesn't come up for another two years. How can you justify giving him a contract two years at $4 million per when he's producing at a better level than almost everybody that gets paid more than him? That's, kind of, that's the stuff that frustrates people. You look at Dan DeKaiser, who's getting $5.5 million next year. Yeah, they don't produce much. Some of, some of those <laughs> players don't produce much, but Tomas Tatar now has 11 goals, 12 assists, totaling up to 23 points. Um, but but uh, Justin Applicator is one of them, another one of them. Four, four goals, six assists, 10 points. Darren Helm, five, three, and eight. Jonathan Erickson, one, seven, and eight, but he's a disaster defensively. Gustav Nyquist, seven goals, 18 assists, 25 points. Not bad. Uh, Franz Nielsen, 10, 10 goals, 16 assists, 26 points, but um, 16 five-on-five points this season. Anthony Mantha, 11 and 11 and 22. Uh, let's see. Uh, Luke Glendening, only one goal, 10 assists, 11, point, 11 points. Still bad, but not terrible, but Glendening can be a lot better than that. Uh, DeKaiser, 2, 5, and 7. And uh, can you believe the Red Wings uh, recalled Drew Miller after he clear- immediately after he cleared waivers? He's only got five goals and one assist, totaling up to six goals. And, and uh, that, that's that, that's just another uh, another frustrating part of this this whole uh, veteran thing. Right. I mean, you have Jeff Blashill saying, oh, we, we think that Drew Miller can play good hockey for us. Well, he's had the chances, and he hasn't done it. So what what sample sizes are you taking those from? Because if you look at a guy like Drew Miller, you look at a guy like Andreas at FSCU, you know, their time on ice is probably relatively similar. Um, we don't have that in front of me. I'll try to pull that up. But you look at those guys, and you're trying to tell me that Andreas at FSCU, who – is a potent goal scorer, has a lot of ability on the offensive end. You'd rather have Drew Miller, or at least you'd talk about him more positively than you do Andreas Athanasiu. I get it. Goals are not the only thing that you need to do in hockey. you got to play a 200-foot game, and it's completely acceptable for them to, to put him down for a shift or two if he's not going to do it. That's what you have to do. On the flip side, you can't trumpet the the merits of a guy like Drew Miller when he hasn't produced you just put him on waivers you literally said we can't we we can't use you you bring him back because of injuries to Steve Ott and Dylan Larkin instead of pulling up a guy like Tomasz Nosek who I don't think that would have been a problem when I mean, you're bringing back Drew Miller and it goes back to that known commodity thing they don't deal well with unknowns they don't or they're not able to tangibly see what Andreas Athensiva can do over a long stretch of time. They don't know what to do with that. They would rather say, well, we know what Drew Miller can do, so we're going to put, we're going to feel safe in putting him out there. 
well, that doesn't really work because you know what he can do, great, but you know he's not good at what he does. And that's where the level of concern comes from the management side is you deal with these known commodities, you know what they can do, and they're going to prove themselves. I mean, Riley Shane has been getting every chance this year to do something. They've put him on the power play. They've increased his time on ice the last four games. They've done everything except for park him in front of the empty net and say, here, put this in. And he still doesn't have one. Yeah, there's some puck luck involved. But when you don't have any goals and you're 50 games into the season, you got to look at it and say, boy, you know, this isn't really working. We're going to have to do something. No doubt he would clear waivers, maybe going back to Green Rapids to wake him up. Instead, they've scratched him one game. That That's the part that really frustrates me and a lot of the other people that follow this team is, is that they have different sets of rules for different guys, and they're applying them reverse in the reverse fashion that they should be. You have guys that are older with bad contracts, and they're playing them more to justify them rather than letting the, the new guys come in and, and try to take over some of those spots. And, again, it's a real deep issue. It goes back a long way with his team and with with his front office. But it, it boils down to you. You want the young guys to produce. I mean, you can't draft guys, and they're gonna they're not gonna be 85 point players out of the gate. It doesn't happen. I mean, I I mean, you, you drafted Steve Eiserman and Sergey Fedorov 25 years ago, or longer, or 30 years ago, and now you look at what they're drafting, and they're still expecting that to happen, and it's just not realistic. Anthony Mantha was a point-of-game player in the queue. That's not something that's to be taken lightly, and yet they don't think he's a, a viable NHL player at this point. And he's proving them wrong, and they still won't budge. He's not a known commodity. He's not, they, he didn't stay in Grand Rapids for four years until he finally they were forced to put him on the roster. They don't know what to do with it. I was surprised as all heck last year when they put Dylan Larkin on the opening night roster. I thought for sure, even though he proved beyond the shadow of a doubt that he was ready for the NHL, both in the AHL playoffs of 2015 and the training camp of 15 and 16, I was I was still surprised that they put him on the opening night roster. It was a pleasant surprise. He had a little bit. Of, he was a, he had a sophomore slump this year, and that's to be expected. But overall, he's still a viable top six forward. They're not scratching him. They're not setting him down for shifts. It's that whole, why can't you apply the rules fairly across the board? Why are you picking guys to do that with? That doesn't happen in Pittsburgh. That doesn't happen in San Jose. That doesn't happen in New York. That doesn't happen in Minnesota. I mean, you you go through all these teams that are going to be in the playoffs this year. That doesn't happen in St. Louis. It doesn't happen in Chicago. That's the part that frustrates you. It's not the fact that they have these guys, that they they are unwilling to play them. It's that you're implying unfair rules or at least uneven rules to them, and that's where a lot of the frustration boils down to. And me as a fan and me as, as a student of the game, it offends me because I look at anybody else that's doing this on, on so many levels, and it, it doesn't happen. I mean, look at the Chicago Blackhawks. Yeah, they spend at a camp every year. Yeah, they have a lot of great players. But their third and fourth line guys do their job. 
and those are usually young kids up in Rockford, or parts and pieces that they've picked up through free agency for relatively low cost. And they're able to do so. Detroit doesn't do that. Detroit does the exact opposite. And that's where a lot of, like I said, that's where the frustration and, and the, the vitriol comes from when, from people on Twitter and people that follow the team, and they don't understand that. And, I, and there's not going to be a way that you're going to tell them to change it. My my utopian hope is that they miss the playoffs this year. They finally realize the error of their ways and start trying to do something with some of these contracts. It's not going to be a good situation, and it's going to be painful, but I'd rather have that than continuing to hang on to the past and using these these antiquated and useless rules on how to, de- 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 to develop or players, to, develop, to give out ice time, and those type of things, because at this point it's not working. Their goal is to make the playoffs. They've said that they're doing it the best way they know how, and it's not working. So, yeah, I agree. That's very true. Because uh, yeah. the Red Wings are um, – the Red Wings, especially with Ken Holland in the front office, are like dumb and thin-skinned and over-loyal organization, only with their known players like Advocate or Glenn Denning, Erickson, the Kaiser, Dayham, Miller, Darren Helm, and make the Toronto of all people. Even Steve Ott, a, a, a washed-up veteran, only has two goals, two, two assists, and four points total. A minus seven. Ott has not been around as of late. They might as well ship him back, and ship him out, so he can just retire. It, it, it's about time. It's about time the Red Wings not only make. Uh, Miss the playoffs and and their and their meaningless playoff streak, but tank and get and get a top draft pick. Well, not even tank. I don't like the word tank. I mean, Buffalo was a prime example of tanking. I mean, literally, when your fans are cheering you after you lose before the the the, the 15 draft and then getting Jack Eichel. I mean, literally, 14 and 15, that 14 15 season, Buffalo was literally trying to lose in the last part of the season. And it doesn't sit well with the players. And that's, that's a hard thing to justify the guys who are getting paid to try every night. But you can tank by seeing what you have. You can play FSU with 15 minutes a night, you can play Mantha and Yurko and Larkin. And all of those guys that you know, they're going to be there for a while. And on the back end, Sproul, Olette, even Nick Jensen, to see if he's worth bringing back on a, on a limited basis. Marchenko, play those guys. It's not going to hurt you. You know what you have. They're never going to learn how to do it if you don't let them. Um, one thing I, I have mm-hmm. you know, I have taken into consideration, too, is um, Peter Mrazek has had a very – um, subpar year overall. He's been very up and down even more than he normally is. Um, I think the loss of Howard actually hurts more than a lot of people that are Ken Holland enemies, so to speak, want to admit, because he was actually playing quite well before that injury when they were playing Arizona. And, you know, you heard reports earlier 
this week and even the last week that, and, that, and you have to take them all with a huge grain of salt, that they were thinking about maybe trading Peter Mrazek because Coro was a capable backup. Well, that's, that might be true, but then at that point, what you're doing is you're dealing a 23-year-old goalie, or 24-year-old goalie, that you just gave a contract to, and you're going to instead get rid of him and keep Jimmy Howard, who is going to be an unknown commodity, coming back off of another knee injury. Jimmy Howard's 32. He's going to be getting $5 million next year. Do you really want a 32- to 33-year-old goaltender who's had two knee injuries to be the guy that you lean on? And if he gets no. hurt that, and did that Jared Carreau is going to be your next guy up in line? Howard may have had, had a good sense. year, but no, he's, but, but no, I don't want an injury-prone goaltender. You want a young and uh, healthier goaltender in Peter Morazic. I know he's, he's had a down year, but it, you, like you pointed out, he's had a subpar year unlike the, the first two years when he was with the Red Wings. He was the uh, number one goaltender against the Tampa Bay Lightning. Mrazek uh, was trying to bust his tail, yet the players let him down in, in both uh, first-round exits against Tampa Bay. And um, it, it just... It just uh, it just kept this playoff streak for the Red Wings so irrelevant that um, that this team was ever good enough to even make a conference final or a conference semifinal any any more. Well, I mean, you got to think back to 2013. They had the Blackhawks down three to one. Yep, and that was the only that was the only time in. <laughs> last five seasons that they've reached a, a conference semifinal. The other four, they didn't. Well, and they haven't been out of the first round. I mean, and remember before that even, um, they they lost in the first round to Nashville. Uh, in 2012, year. yeah. In, five, in 2012, eight. the year that Lindstrom retired. So, I mean, it's it's not been. I mean, since they lost in the cup final, it has been a very bleak outlook for them in the playoffs, and yeah. and again, it, 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 people were fine with really trying to retool and find out you know, what they could do with this franchise after Nick Lindstrom retired. But it's that loyalty. We're good. We, you know, Ken Holland saying we owe it to Cronwell. We owe it to these guys. What do you owe them? You don't owe them anything. You owe them an ability to. Do Maybe if they stick it out for a couple of years, get back to respectability or even relevance. At this point, they're not they're not there. They're on the outside looking in, and they're playing hard minutes that are getting them nowhere. And I think that um, it's a re- it's a real downer. It's, it's not something that any fan of any team wants to go through. But at some point, you kind of you got to bite that bullet and say, "Hey, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to really kind of hit the plunger and, and see what we can do." And to use examples of teams that rebuilds take eight to ten years. Well, if you do it wrong, yeah, it's going to take that long. So I made the point earlier. You look at a team like the New Jersey Devils, who in 2012 
in 13 matches, and they made the play, they made the finals, finally losing to the Kings. Martin Berdier had one last hurrah, where he basically dragged them on his back. They didn't have real offensive talent to speak of above Zach Parise and um, Travis Zajac, and that was it. And ever since then, they've made a trade for Corey Schneider, and they really haven't improved the team around him. Um, they do, They got Taylor Hall this year, but they traded Adam Larson, who's their best defenseman, and they've just kind of dug one hole to fill another, and they just are, they've been middling in the top end of the lottery for the past three to four years. And that's what you're looking at with the Red Wings right now because there's way too many contracts that they have to get out from under that nobody's going to help them with, and there's way too many uh, players that they have that they have to re-sign or they're going to have to make a decision on in the next couple of years that – they're going to have to either cut some checks or let them go, and they're not willing to, to do that. They're, they want to they keep this this streak alive and for whatever reason, and it's just not going to happen. And really, I really see them floundering for the next three to four seasons unless something major changes, and I just don't have that hope or I don't have that confidence that it will. And that's that's the that's the part that's more frustrating than anything is that you look at them and say, boy, you know, if they could just somehow get some of these get out from a couple of these contracts and really do well in the draft. I mean, the, even with the guys that they're drafting now, teams are still up to last year, still amazed at how some of these guys that they're pulling. I mean, Dylan Larkin made it all the way down to 18. Anthony Manto was where he was at. I mean, it, these are guys that they're still able to get and, and make something of, and they're choosing not not to do anything with them. Andreas Athanasio was a second-round draft pick. I'm sorry, third-round draft pick. Nobody knew what he was capable of, and now he's one of their most potent scorers when you talk about five-on-five, time-on-ice, dependent stats. He's one of their more potent scorers. He's up at the top of the league on five on five points per sixty minutes. But yeah, it's more important. It's more. It's more important to, to shovel Darren Helm three point eight five million when nobody else would have gave him over three. And Prashant Dyer um, provides us that that kind of information uh, five on five uh, time on ice and shots on goal and goals for. For Andreas Athanasiu, for example, he is the uh, analytic guru. guru is uh, Prashant Iyer. You can follow him on Twitter at Iyer underscore Prashant I Y E R I Y E R I Y E R underscore P R A S H A N T H. Yeah, I see the Devils just lost to the Washington Capitals. Uh, yeah, five to two. Well, now the Red Wings have one less regulation loss than the Devils do. That's that's why the Red Wings are ahead of the Devils, away from to avoid last place in the Eastern Conference. They're both in a four-way tie for 49 points, with 49 points for seventh place between the Carolina. Hurricanes and the Buffalo Sabres. 
But speaking of the the uh, Buffalo Sabers, uh, the Red Wings lost to them in overtime, three to two. That was one of the first of their uh, three overtime losses, and they and uh, there was no way it, had the Red Wings had, had been that had been that good already. There was no way the Red Wings could have could have beaten that could have lost to uh, the Sabres in any way, shape, or form. But they but they lost in overtime. They had a late goal there that Buffalo was able to tie the game up, and then they ended up winning it in overtime against that, that stellar uh, defensive <laughs> pair of, er- of Erickson and DeKaiser <laughs> out there on the penalty kill. And Glenn Denning, and, and Glenn Denning on there on the ice, too, uh, on the penalty kill, what in what in fuck's name is Jeff Blashill thinking? Yeah, yeah, nice fucking penalty kill, Jeff Blashill. Yeah, and that's the frustrating point. Where they say, well, if we play like this, we won't be out of it for long. You gave up six points and gave three and got three against three teams that were in front of you. And Detroit won all those games in overtime. They'd be tied with Florida right now, right below Philly and Toronto. Instead, they have to jump literally six teams to get into wow. a wild card spot. They've regressed, but they're giving you the narrative that they're, air quotes, close. It's not happening. You can't tell somebody that, that pays any sort of attention to this stuff, hey, we're, we're close, or if we keep playing like this, we'll be fine. You won't be fine because you just handed the teams above you Six points. You gave Buffalo two. You gave the Raiders two, and you gave Boston two. Yeah. Yeah, and you only got three points in the game. Right. Three point game. I mean, three point games. And don't get me started on what they need to do with that. But three point games are those are big swing games. If you can win in regulation, that's great. But if you get into overtime, the point does nothing for you. At this at this juncture of the season, you're 50 games in. You can't be giving those teams points. You get one, but you give them two. That means they have more than you. And when they're ahead of you in the standings, that's bad. So it's really just it's overall frustration with not only what's going on on the team on the ice, and that's one whole section of it. But the other section of it is is really them trying to feed the fans that that narrative of we're close or we're still in it or whatever it is that they want to spew as far as getting out to that message out to the fans. A seven point There's, deficit. A seven point deficit between between uh, the Red Wings and the Philadelphia Flyers for that second and final wild card mm-hmm. is not is not that close. It's not in fact No. It's not it, 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 close at all. No. No, because you have to jump off so to so make up seven points on Philly, they've got to lose four games more than you've won. And the other teams in front of you all have to stink. That's the part that they don't tell you is, yeah, we're, we're this close. Yeah. Okay. But how many teams do I have to jump over? Because even if I'm at 49 points, chances are all the teams that are ahead of me aren't going to lose all of their games. So you have to factor that in. And figure out how many, what your pace really has to be before you're able to get in the playoffs. I mean, Tampa Bay 
won a re- had a really nice effort in the third period last night, ended up beating Chicago 5-2, to two, and climbed out of the cellar with a regulation win. And they lost tonight in an overtime, but again, it's just them telling people, oh, we're close, or yeah, it's, it's everybody's close. The only team that's not close in any stretch of the imagination isn't even in your conference, and that's Colorado. Arizona's not far behind that them. After that, I mean, you're you're looking at you're the you're the third or let's see one two so four, you're the fourth worst team in the league. Yeah, you still have a chance, but it's it's, it's so minuscule that you really can't depend on it for for any sort of of, of, of surety. So that's where a lot of the frustration. It, from from me personally, and probably a lot of people that follow the team comes from is just yeah, the, the on the ice stuff is one thing, but the the off the ice stuff, I mean, you you can't really sell that product to people, and then when the numbers come out, I mean, it, it, you look at what other teams are doing and how they're doing at Toronto. Yes, I know that they're able to cheat a little bit, but with Austin Matthews and and Mitch Marner. You've got to be that bad to get that good, and they just aren't willing to do that. And I think that's that's really the the, the, the if you had to to pin it down to one thing that a lot of people are frustrated with, or a lot of people just don't understand, at least ardent fans that have been rooting for the team for a long time, is that they're afraid to get afraid to be bad because Ken Howland is picking his job over letting that franchise do what it has to do in the natural selection of of how teams go. And th- that's the part that a lot of people are dissatisfied with, and I, I really don't see them changing anytime soon. Yeah, well, even if they uh, miss, the, miss the playoffs and end the streak, wouldn't you think? Would they? Would they? Would they not change? I don't think so. I think they'll try. I mean, I, I really think they'll lean on the. Well, we had injuries. We had this. You know, we had Jimmy Howard go down. We had Darren Helm out for a long time. We had Ablocator out. We had guys that you know. They're going yeah. to try. To, I mean, now to be fair, they have lost, and I don't know if it's changed after tonight. But they and Edmonton were tied for the most man games lost to injury this season, and they'll use. Right. You know, they'll. And, and the funny thing is about that argument is they'll say, well, you know, all those people, because they, they, they defy modern analytics. I'm kind of a hybrid. I like to use those numbers. I also like to see what's happening in front of my face. But they'll, they'll, they discount all these people, you know, like, I, like Iyer and some of these guys that analyze the games and tell them these are what the numbers say is happening. They defy those people. They say they're 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 not really the whole picture yet. As soon as they miss the playoffs, they'll go right to that board and point to a number and say, "Oh, we lost the most man games to injury." Mm-hmm. You know, and it goes back to that battling narrative. You tell us one thing, and then you use it, and then you go to another, and it's insulting to a lot of the fans that have supported the team for a long time, especially during this streak, and. And now seeing what it's become and what it's done to the franchise, and you know, you look down the road to the other team 
that's owned by Olympia Entertainment, and that's coming too. And it, it could be the same situation looking at that roster. It could be that situation coming to them too with, with the contracts that they've given out um, at Comerica Park and the Tigers. That could be the same thing. You know, the loyalty, the we're going to reward the guys who are here. That thing, that's good to a point, but it, you, at some point you just have to, to cut losses and, and run it as a business, not as a toy that you've had for a while that you really don't want to get rid of. Yeah, and uh, Ken Holland uh, is gonna even if even if uh, Apple players like Applicator and Helm suck, that he's gonna he's gonna keep keep thinking that they're they're better than Mantha and Athens to you, and, and in totality he's gonna he's gonna keep he's gonna make the injury excuse of. Uh, Advocator and Helm and Howard um, that, that uh, when Advocator and Helm have not been producing, while Jimmy Howard has been standing on his head, Advocator and Helm, regardless how very little it, they have done this year, they still Ken Holland is still going to be loyal to. Be, be more loyal to known players like Applicator and Helm, and um, and think that they're still better than the young guys like Matha and Athanasiu, and and uh, he's gonna he's gonna think the Red Wings missed Applicator and Helm, which is which is why regardless of the playoff streak, Holland's gonna make that injury excuse and say. Uh, we're going to stay the course anyway because uh, because of all the injuries, which is not true. But Holland's, I just have a bad. We just have a bad feeling that Holland's going to pull that same stunt anyway. Well, you're absolutely right. And I, I, when you look at the team's performance when those guys are out versus when they've been in, if that's in any indication at all, I mean, if you want to go, to, I mean, if you go to numbers that they can at least trust, which are wins, losses, and points, their performance has decreased since those guys have come back. Abdelkader came back uh, in December versus Chicago. Helmer recently came back. Their numbers have suffered since those guys have come back. Well, I mean, Abdelkader for the longer term, but I mean they have not played to the level they had, were at before. And Right, and then like you said, they'll point to that injury, that man games lost. So you know we're going to stay the course because you know if we're healthy, we're a playoff team, and all those other things that you're going to try to tell yourself. Just bear in mind that two teams ahead of them in the standings, Florida and the Islanders, who right now are four and five in the wild card standings, have already fired their coach this year, and they're above 500 right now. Boston, who is in currently sitting in third place in the Atlantic. When they lost that six to five game at Joe Louis Arena that you mentioned earlier, there were a lot of people that thought that Claude Julian was gonna get on that plane and he was gonna to go to get touchdown at Logan and he wasn't gonna have a job anymore. And they're right now sitting in third place in the division. Yet 
the Red Wings, who can't get out of their own way and are second from last in the conference, are talking about injuries and benching young players because they're not not skating hard or whatever the heck the reasons are. And, and, and again, you see how far away the Red Wings are from what all the other teams in the league, or most of the other teams in the league are doing. And all these teams are having more success, or at least they're having better seasons or better results than they are. That's, that's where the frustration comes from. You're doing something that's not working. You're telling us it's supposed to be working, but it's not. And we look at results. I mean, Gerard Gallant gets fired right after a game in Carolina, and Jack Capuano gets the gate um, for the Islanders uh, about a month later, and they're doing better than this team currently is. And they're not benching guys. They're they're not signing guys to exorbitant contracts and aren't going to do a whole lot of things. I mean, Ford did sign Keith Yandel to a big contract this year, but I mean, he, he's done what they've asked him to do. And he was a complimentary piece rather than being a centerpiece. So you just look at all these things that are happening league-wide, and it's just baffling. It's just mind-boggling how they can continue to do this, and everything that they do flies in the face of what the league has become and what the league has basically mandated that you do, which is load up your top six and your top three defensemen with as much money as you can and see how much mileage you can get out of either young guys like Anthony C. and Mantha or find spare parts that nobody else wanted that have a success, have success um, like Pittsburgh and San Jose did last year, and you're in the finals. And not giving exorbitant contracts to guys who have been there for a long time that don't produce at nearly the levels that players of comparable salary do. And, and – stashing young players on the bench and, and uh, giving them the ice time that they need, doing exactly the opposite of what the template is for success now in the NHL and trying to sell it as, it's the, you know, it'll work, it'll it'll be fine. I mean, it's kind of like, I, I think of it as, you know, you get somebody that <clears throat> has a, something that's old and reliable and it hasn't quit on them, but it takes them three times the, the time and the effort to get something done with it rather than just getting a new tool or a new whatever it is, new gadget. I mean, I don't, it just doesn't make sense. And that's where a lot of the, there's the, the, the head shaking and, and fist shaking and everything else that comes out from it. That's where it comes from. Yeah, and it does lead to the Red Wings uh, not, not reaching, not no longer reaching their peak, and just uh, just already bottoming bottoming out, and and it could and it could lead again. It could lead to, to something good. Maybe maybe you can wake the team up if the Red Wings miss the playoffs. But then again, Ken Holland um, is going to like I like I pointed out. He's going to use the same injury excuse for. Uh, for uh, known known players, whether they suck or not, like Adam Kater and Helm and Jonathan Eric, right. Danny yeah. DeKaiser, other pile of shit. And because 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 
especially because they're under long-term contracts, regardless of how badly they play expensive long-term contracts, that is. And um, we're getting getting tired of it. We might as well uh, root for the Red Wings to miss the playoffs every fucking year going forward. Well, and that's that's a point that is very valid, and that what do you root for? Do I root for them to make the playoffs because I like them? I mean, it's my favorite team. I've rooted them for them formally. Or do I root for them to miss the playoffs, and hopefully that changes things so that they get back on the track that they were on in this throughout case. throughout the bulk of the time that I have been a fan, and. And when, and when I say the, the way I'm talking about success, not the way they've gotten to that success, um, because it's, it's not viable anymore. I mean, you can't just sign guys at your leisure anymore. And, and the cap era really has, has put a down turn on this franchise. I mean, Mike Babcock did very well, but even he at the very end of this of his tenure knew that things weren't going to change they weren't going to embrace a youth movement. He had trouble getting guys on the roster that he really wanted as far as young players are concerned. He had a hard time with Ken Holland's style of leaving guys in the minors forever um, only to bring them up for injury replacement and, and not to give them a chance to showcase. Because I think that, I mean, when you look at Toronto this year, Mike Babcock, partly by choice and probably by design, he can only play the young kids. That's all he's got. He doesn't have guys that are, quote-unquote, deserving or that they're loyal to, to to throw out there. They haven't done that. And you look at what Toronto has done, yeah, they're cheating a little bit with getting a generational player such as Austin Matthews. Of course you're going to have success. But the other guys around him, I mean, they've built that franchise up. They've done good things the last two or three seasons. And now they're at this point where they're very close to a playoff spot. And even if they miss, they're on that way up. And Mike Babcock, he left for a bigger paycheck, but there were other motives. And that was one of the big ones. I mean, I remember a lot of times where he'd be very terse and short when asked about who was going to be playing or who they were going to call up because of an injury or, or something else like that. I mean, at this point, if I'm Detroit, if somehow I were there was a miracle and I was able to run the team, there's, those contracts you're not going to get out from under. That's going to be something that's just going to be an attrition over time. You might be able to, to foist one or two on somebody like a Las Vegas or maybe even like a Colorado or Arizona that, that needs to hit the cat floor. But at the same time, play the young kid. Bring everybody up that you can. I mean, you've got Steve out on long-term injured reserve right now. Tomasz Nosek is playing a really good hockey here in Grand Rapids. I went to the weekend series last weekend. I'm going to go to the weekend series this weekend. And he's playing excellent hockey. Yeah, it's AHL level, but he's playing well. Reward him. Bring him up. See what he can do. He's not going to do any worse than Steve Ott was doing, which was nothing. Bring him up. Let him figure out what he can do, what he can't do. You can't rebuild if you don't know what you have already. You can't rebuild if you don't know what your needs are. 
And I think that's part of their built-in excuse. They're going to say, well, we can't rebuild because we really don't know. We have these unknown commodities that haven't proven themselves yet. Of course, they're not going to. You don't give them the chance. And I think that's this kind of built going, like I said, at the beginning of this this segment that we've been on, backing themselves into a corner with narrow thinking and then trying to justify it with the same reasons that they've backed themselves into the corner with. And so at this point, that's where they are. They're literally trying to defend themselves from the position that they put themselves in. Yeah. Um, and, and if you look at the Maple Leafs right now, they're just one point away from the Philadelphia Flyers right now, 55 to 56. For that second wild card spot, the Maple Leafs were, were at one point in the playoff picture. In fact, in third place in the Atlantic Division. No joke. Yeah, they lost tonight. Uh, they uh, they went with their backup. They went with their backup tonight. They ended up losing and falling out of that. But they've got three games in hand on Philadelphia. Chances are they're going to win at least one of those or at least pick up some points. So, I mean, you could truthfully say that, yes, they're sitting outside points-wise, but percentage-wise, they're in a playoff spot right now. I mean, that's a little bit of semantics, but they're in a playoff spot, and they're doing it by rebuilding. I don't count the first, whatever, six years that they did that before they were able to start drafting guys like Nylander, Marner, Matthews. You have to do that in this league. You have to be bad before you're good, and Detroit isn't willing to do it. Ken Holland is not willing to take two years at the bottom of the heap because he thinks that his job security is contingent upon him making the playoffs. And there's nobody that's going to tell him any different. And until something happens where by some miracle they they either A, make the playoffs, or B, fall so far out of contention that it's obvious that they're going to need to, to really retool, we're going to be stuck here. And... Like I said, I use the New Jersey example because they're a prime example of what happened. They did the same thing through the, the mid-'90s to 2000s, loaded up on older free agents that were proven commodities, paid them a lot of money, and the cap era came. They couldn't do that anymore. And even they've been to a final before Detroit has. I mean, they were in the final in, in 13. And so it, it's just it's mind-boggling that, to think about where the Detroit could be in the next couple of years because it's not going to get any better. It's probably going to get worse. Yeah, and uh, the way I describe it, Ken Holland is trying to uh, fight out of that quicksand pit that he's uh, been stuck in since '09, and uh, he, yet he keeps he keeps making this team make the playoffs just for the hell of it without reaching your conference final since 09 and and it, and it just keeps sinking in and sinking in and sinking it sinking in even though they make make the playoffs uh two playoffs two playoff appearances ago they 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 took the lightning to seven games and and then and they lost in that series and then they lost in five in 2016, the last playoff appearance. And now the Red Wings are uh, second to dead last in the Eastern Conference. 
which which uh, which leads us to believe that they're not going to make the playoffs this year. There's still there's still two and a half months to go, but or or like getting down to, or getting down to two and a quarter months to go now, since it's already January 27th. I don't know how I don't know how tough uh, the Red Wings schedule is uh, going forward after uh, their their first game back at home against New Jersey after the NHL All Star break. And Franz Nielsen is uh, Detroit's only representative to uh, be in the All Star game, and and Franz Nielsen didn't deserve that. Only sixteen again, only sixteen five on five points this season. That's uh, not worth his contract money. No, and you look at how they did the all-star voting this year because of the John Scott thing. Teams supplied a predetermined list of players that are going to be made available to the captains who were voted in by the fans. I can only imagine what that predetermined list looked like because I'm pretty sure it didn't have number 39 or number 72 on it. Yeah. Speaking of Las Vegas, uh, the Golden Knights uh, have arrived at the NHL. They'll start playing um, playing in the NHL starting next year. Um, I, I would think I would see. I had uh, starting in 2013, since the uh, conference realignment took place, and, and I and I didn't agree. And some parts of it, I I did not agree with. Um, the Atlantic with the Detroit Red Wings in it, they're not an Atlantic team. They're, they're, they should be a Metropolitan uh, team because they're not, they're not, they're not even near the Atlantic Ocean. So I made it, I made one up in throw. I made one, I made up one of my own uh, re- realignment uh, conference uh, concepts. The Red Wings, the Blue Jackets, and the Metropolitan, the Sabres, the Penguins, uh, the Philadelphia Flyers, the Ottawa Senators, the Maple Leafs, and the Canadians, and then then in the Atlantic, the Hurricanes, the Devils, the Rangers, the Islanders, the Bruins, the Capitals, the Panthers, and the Lightning. And then back in 2013, when I had the then Phoenix Coyotes in the Pacific Division, um, I had. I had uh, two two expansion teams that that I thought were a good fit, either Wisconsin in the Central Division and Seattle in the in the Pacific Division. But now they, but now this season that I've heard the Las Vegas Golden Knights have appeared and will start playing in the NHL. They're, they're a Pacific Division team. And uh, they're all they've they've also been con- contemplating um, a Seattle team in the NHL. They're both see they're both Pacific Division teams, and uh, Arizona has been in the uh, Pacific Division as well. But uh, they're they're uh, they're like more like south of the border. I I, I know they're I know they're next to California, but. But um, I, I'm thinking that 
Arizona is more Arizona's farther out out of the Pacific Ocean than Las Vegas and Seattle. Yeah. So so uh looking at the map the way it goes, I would have to move the Arizona Coyotes to the Central Division along with the Blackhawks, Avalanche, Stars, Wild Predators, Blues and Jets the Winnipeg Jets that is. And and put the uh, Golden Knights and the Seattle team of the Pacific Division with the Canucks, Flames, Oilers, Ducks, Kings, and Sharks. And I forgot to uh, uh, send that picture uh, of of the uh, conference uh, realignment to uh, Rink Vashner, which I promised last night. So I'm gonna I'm gonna send him that pick right now, and then I'll send you one. Okay. But uh, moving on to the Pistons, uh, while we uh, while we uh, con- continue this episode, speaking um, of disappointment, yes, let's go let's yes. go right to the Pistons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Pistons uh, still also still have a chance to uh, make the playoffs, but um, there's been a contemplating there's been a discussion about a, a trade rumor involving. Uh, Reggie Jackson and Ricky Rubio. Uh, I, I don't know what was going on with that. I looked at uh, Rubio's stats co- and compared them to Reggie Jackson's stats. And Jackson's stats, especially points per game, have been uh, much higher than Rub- Rubio's statistics. Rubio's uh, reaching a career low, in fact, with 7.6 points per game. And uh, that. And that that doesn't that does not bode well with any team whatsoever. Whether you're the Pistons, whether you're whether you're with the Pistons or the Minnesota Timberwolves, you, you just can't afford, especially if you're the Pistons, if you can't you can't despite all the despite what all the despite the altercations between the rest of the Pistons and Reggie Jackson had when he returned to his his lineup, which caused which caused the Pistons to. Uh, Go into a bit of a downfall. They um, they hung in there, and they hung in there afterwards. You still can't afford Reggie Jackson. You still can't afford to trade Reggie Jackson to the Minnesota Timberwolves for a much worse player in Ricky Rubio. Because where does that where the hell does that leave you with Rubio and Ish Smith? They don't score too many points per game this season and that that's troubling for in the point card position. Well it is. And you know, looking at the the NBA as a whole, the Pistons are really not that far out. The Bucks right now are ahead of them and then they're a game and a half behind the Bulls who if you, if you read any of the Chicago media at all, the Bulls are just a complete disaster as a as in the standpoint of player coach relations and, and player media relations. I mean it's just it's a very chaotic situation. And the Pistons, when you talk about disappointments, they're the polar opposite. People have no problem with Stan Van Gundy for the most part. They don't have a problem with the coaching or the front office. It's the players. Uh, Andre Drummond, who is supposed to be a franchise player, can't be trusted in the free throw line and can't be trusted late in games. Um, Reggie Jackson, who's a max contract point guard, and he's not really a point guard, but he's what they've got. Um, He's a, a good point guard. He he does kind of what they need, but Stephen Van Gundy 
is always preferred and more of a facilitator of the offense at that position. Um, Ricky Rubio is not going to be a good scorer. He's not going to be a 20-point or 15-point-a-night guy, but he's going to distribute the basketball. And I think that Stan Van Gundy really, that's where his frustration lies with Reggie Jackson is because when Stan Van Gundy's coach teams have had most success, I mean, you go back to when they made the finals, they had Jameer Nelson as their point guard. Jameer Nelson was not a scorer. He was a physical defender and a distributor of the basketball. Now, Ricky Rubio is not a physical defender, and that's where they might lose a little bit as well. But you, you see where he would like their offense to, to move in a little bit more consistent pattern. And I think that that trade rumor probably came out partly to spark out Reggie Jackson. And just like Stan Van Gundy said, these conversations happen all the time. People talk about trades all the time. It's just that this one happened to catch a little bit more wind. Somebody got a hold of it, and they put it out there for public consumption. I think the Pistons still have a chance, even though they they were not good in the last game. I watched them play against Sacramento. That was relatively uh, disappointing performance by them. But they're still right in the thick of getting into the playoffs, and even though they've regressed a little bit this year, they can still make a run. Um, they can still get into the playoffs. Now, granted, if they were to get into the playoffs, they'd probably get their heads handed to them by the Cavaliers or the Raptors again. Um, in the first round, um, but it's making the playoffs. It's showing progress, and I think that this is going to be a pivotal offseason for them too. Number one, you've got KCP coming up for his contract, and they're talking about maxing him out, and that's going to be a shame because he's not a max player. Yes, he is a very good defender. He's their best perimeter defender by far, but offensively he doesn't contribute as much. And with the NBA the way it's going now, you see a decided upturn in scoring this year. I mean, I've noticed a lot more scoring on the whole throughout the league than in the past couple of seasons. And a perimeter defender, a shutdown defender, isn't really necessary on a team that is going to be the eighth seed. (laughs) So... Do you really want to carry a max contract for KCP right after you gave a max contract to Reggie Jackson? Also have a max contract for Andre Drummond. And you've got Tobias Harris coming up in the next couple of years who probably is going to be a max player somewhere. Are you going to have four max contracts on your team? It's not really viable for you to do that, especially in the NBA where that's, again, it's a cap world and there's a luxury tax. And so... Tom Gores really isn't interested too much in paying that luxury tax. So you you look at that roster, KCP's probably expendable as long as they can find a capable replacement for him and maybe a little bit of an upgrade on offense. The defense, it's hard to replace that, but as long as they can have somebody that improves them offensively at that two spot, um, that would be a win for them. And you talk about trading Reggie Jackson for Ricky Rubio. And I look at this team, and I I said it earlier this year, I don't watch a ton of basketball, but the the, the basketball I do watch when the Pistons play, they just don't have that inspired look like they did last year because people didn't believe in them last year. People didn't think that they were going to be any good. And they 
got to the first round of the playoffs and people didn't have them in anywhere near the playoffs last year. And so they got to that little pinnacle and now they've dropped back off. It's like they were satisfied with that that achievement and they didn't really want to expand upon it. And Sam Van Gundy has done everything but, you know, go on the court himself and try to show him what to do. And I, I think that this is going to be something for the Pistons that as it comes down to the trade deadline in the NBA, whether they decide that they're going to try to make the playoffs and make a move, because I think that there's a lot of teams ahead of them that are going to be doing that, and they may see fit to follow suit and, and try to get somebody. I don't know what the NBA trade market looks like, um, but they have a lot of options. I know that Aaron Baines is being rumored is shopped around. I don't know who needs a, a really bad backup center that, that much, but um, he was being rumored as being shopped around. And it's, it's a pivotal time for them, too, because they're right now they're one and a half games out of a playoff spot with one game in hand on the Bulls. And coming down the stretch here, they've really got to get more consistent on the offensive end. Um, their defense has to improve in the aspect that their perimeter defense has been okay, but they're probably inside the arc or in the painted area, it's been it's been less than optimal. And they need to improve that, especially in a conference in the East where you have guys that um, are like Kristaps Porzingis. Um, you know, you have guys like, that are playing, you know, like Kevin Love. Guys that are big men, but they're playing outside. They have to get better at that. They need to find somebody that can play mid-range defense on some of those guys because that was the Pistons' weakness last year. It was their mid-range to paint defense, and it's the same thing this year. They need to improve that, but at the same time, their offense has been inconsistent. They need to shore that up. So do they make a move? Do they try to do something to get themselves into the playoffs? Do they trade KCP, try to get some assets because they know they're not going to re-sign them to a max contract? And those are all things that figure into the equation for them I would really like them to see to try to, to make a run at the playoffs and try to get in and be buyers or at least try to improve the team before the trade deadline rather than just sell off assets to, and try to get something in return. Because I think they do have a really good core. Um, but I've been saying it for about a month, a month and a half now, they need to make a shakeup trade. Whether that's Reggie Jackson going for Ricky Rubio, whether that's KCP going to somebody for whatever it is they can get in return for him, they need to shake it up a little bit because this team is really complacent and they don't have any force outside of Stan Van Gundy that can really get them moving. And I think a shake-up trade would probably help them more than it would hurt them. Will it be a long-term problem? It could be, but if they're smart about it, they can do what they want to do this year, which is, again, get into the playoffs, show some progress, maybe win a game or two, but also not mortgage the future for doing that and really set themselves up here because the free agent market in the NBA is going to be a real mixed bag and there's not there's not going to be a lot of, I guess, pieces that would fit into their puzzle that they can put in right now. And it's going to be interesting with uh, some of the high test free agents. You know, you've got Carmelo who's coming up and, He's not happy. He's on the block right now, and he's he needs to be either dealt or re-signed somewhere next year. And you've got a lot of these high-profile free agents. I think the Pistons are 
probably not in that shopping or that end of the shopping, but you know, those mid to low range free agents that they can pick up and be complimentary pieces, I think they can probably get some assets with some trades, make some moves there, get some guys in, and really try to shake things up and maybe move a piece of that core and try to get everybody else motivated because that's what I see in this team is just a, a lack of of motivation as, as a team as a whole because you have Reggie Jackson fighting with, with Stan Van Gundy, Andre Drummond, you know, he's a, he's a child when it comes to being a leader for the team and he's supposed to be the franchise player. They really need to find somebody that can get them motivated on the court and they don't have that right now and that's going to be the key for them. Can they get somebody to do that for them or at least can they get somebody to, to help out in that regard and make that push to get into the playoffs and, and show some improvement over last year. By the trade deadline especially, that that would be the key. That would be the key question. And um, and uh, some fans have, have wanted uh, Reggie Jackson and Andre Drummond to be on the trading block. And, uh, I, I mean, I don't blame them. I, they, they believe that uh, having the same thing is uh, just not going to get them anywhere. And, and if they and if they make and if they make that trade involving those at least one trade or two involving those two players, they they would believe that that the that the Pistons would uh, go farther. Um, get you know in the in the playoffs get at least one playoff win. I mean, you look, at the, you look at the landscape of what the so-called trade rumors are, and it's yeah, <laughs> it's but pretty, exactly. it's pretty, just it's pretty sure. grim. <laughs> yeah, just make just make sure that that there are great players not that that have uh, that have the uh, the higher statistics and not not low statistics like Ricky Rubio does for Christ's sake. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't get the fuck out of here with that. Well, I, you can look at that trade and. Right. I mean, when it comes down to the pure numbers of it, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. You're treating a guy who's a proven scorer for you and is is your, your starting point guard on a max deal, and you're trading him for Ricky Rubio, who I don't know if if he's ever really lived up to what he he was supposed to be. And, and I can see why people would not understand that at all. On the flip side, like I said, it, could, it really kind of goes to my – belief that they're trying to shake things up, trying to get these guys motivated or trying to get them to get their act together and threatening a trade to somebody, sometimes that'll do it. Or at least letting that, you know, accidentally slip out that they were shopping them around. Maybe that motivates them to, to kind of listen and, and kind of to get back on track and, and get on task with, with getting to the playoffs. Because right now, as their roster stands, there's not a whole lot of spots that they need to fill. They have a decent roster. It's the performance of those guys on that roster that's concerning, and there's really very few things you can do to that other than either A, hope they get better, or B, trade somebody and hope the guy that you bring in to replace that spot gets better or does better than what was already there. Good point. Well, uh, one one quick uh, 
topic on the Lions and Tigers each. Let's uh, start with a let's, let's start with the Lions here before we go to go to Tigers. Um, there was an article uh, from the Detroit Free Press uh, headlining: "Is Matthew Stafford the highest paid quarterback in the NFL?" Um, we we would have to say no because he still hasn't won a playoff game. He's 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 a productive quarterback. He was almost MVP MVP caliber caliber the past this past season. But now, uh, but then when we witness those those last three losses, the last four losses to the Giant, the New York Giants, the Dallas Cowboys, and the Green Bay Packers, and then the Seattle Seahawks in the in the uh, divisional wild card round in Seattle, it, the, their offense really tailed off, except they picked up 24 points a, a little bit, but mostly tailed, tailed off just 17 points. Yeah, I mean, and I'll put a disclaimer out there. I'm a Chicago Bears fan, so I gave up in September on NFL football. My brother's a fan of that. <laughs> I decided to watch other teams, and living in Michigan, Lions are usually the, the choice for me. But, I mean, when I looked at those those last four losses, they did it in every way possible. They played to the Giants, and they couldn't get across the street. And then they, they played the Cowboys and played relatively well on offense, but they couldn't stop Dallas with a grenade or a cannon or anything else that they could have brought on the field. Because That's right. They, yeah, they, the Lions put up. The Lions put up 21 points in the first half, but then, but then they they were shut out in the second half. They were, and that that's kind of that gets into the point of, you know, people made a lot of fun of Caldwell and his lack of adjustments and all these other things. Um, but it, for the Lions, I think that the, when you talk about Matthew Stafford, and this is coming from somebody who is not a Lions fan, who has seen him play against other teams, including a team that. My favorite team of theirs, who somehow, under some weird circumstance, beat them this year. I mean, Matthew Stafford improved overall. I thought he was a better quarterback this year than he had been at any point of his career, save for 2012 when he threw for 5,000-plus yards. This was probably his best season. And, and when you talk about his whole body of work as an NFL quarterback, that said, if you're going to make him the highest-paid quarterback in the NFL, which I don't necessarily disagree with, you have to surround him with the tools that will allow him to use his talents. The running game was atrocious. Even if they, even at the start of the season, with everybody healthy, that running game was not something that you wanted to hang your hat on. And as they had injuries upon injuries, upon injury. I mean, they brought back Judd Bell for Christ's sake. I mean, that's where they were at with the running back position. Zach Zenner was running the football, and you had Dwayne Washington in there as well. They signed Justin Forsett for a spell because they had so little depth at that position. Theo Reddick going down really hurt them offensively. It limited them. Marvin Jones was very disappointing for them. I thought that he had a very subpar year. And Golden Tate also regressed throughout the season. I think that as a whole, offensively, they're not a great offensive team. Stafford probably made them better than they were. My concern would be on their defensive side. 
I mean, literally, you and I could have played quarterback against them and never gotten dirty because they were poor on the pass rush. Their defensive backs were probably above average. I'd have to look at some of the grades that they got overall throughout the season. Um, But their defensive backs were not the problem. The fact is, when the quarterback has forever to throw, and the Green Bay game was a terrific display of that, where Aaron Rodgers just sat back there and just waited for guys to get open. I mean, he never even had to get out of the pocket for, say, a handful of times. That's where they need to improve. They need to bolster that front four. And say what about Terrell Austin, but the talent that they had up there, especially at defensive tackle, ever since Dominican Sue left, They've really tried to piecemeal that defensive line together. Ziggy Anza was okay, but you can only—he's only one guy. He got double teamed, or at least they schemed against him quite a bit. And I think that for them to get better next year and to make another step outside of coaching and other things that they probably need to have improved, the defensive line for them was just a, a real sore point for them. And looking at a lot of mock drafts, and one mock drafts that I looked at, they had they had Malik McDowell as the, the Lions' first pick, and I don't know if Malik McDowell will get that far, depending on what happens in, in the draft. But they're going to need to bulk up on the defensive line. They're going to really need to go defensive heavy in the draft because they have a lot of pieces that they need to put in place. And I think the frustrating thing for Lions fans. And, you know, again, this is somebody from outside of that base. You look at guys like Kyle Van Noy, who's playing in the Super Bowl next week, and you look at guys that they have let go that are succeeding in other areas or in other teams, and it really makes people wonder, well, why did they get rid of Kyle Van Noy? It opened up a spot for Josh Bynes. And I think that that's really what they were trying to do. Kyle Van Noy just wasn't a fit in their system. But you look at that, and and a lot of the Lions fans think, gee, why did we get rid of this guy? You know, why did we do that? Why why could we hold on to him? Well, he wasn't doing what you needed him to do, and you put him into a different system. I mean, another player on that team that I'm familiar with is Shane McClellan. He was an absolute disaster draft pick for Phil Emery and the Chicago Bears. He goes to New England. And it's it's like somebody hooked him up and put him into a different body because he's playing a completely different game. A lot of that is coaching and system, but some of it also is motivation and having the ability to play with better players. And I think that if you keep Matthew Stafford, that you're going to have to somehow shore up that offense with free agency because in the draft, they've really got to go after some guys on defense to shore up that defensive line and even get some depth in the, in the secondary because when you have Nevin Lawson back there playing starting DB packages and that's not going to work for you. It's, it's not, a, not a good situation. Darius Slay was by far their best corner, by far their best defensive back, and he can't do it all. And you looked at when you watched the Seattle game, I mean, you just – the way that you had to beat Seattle this year was get to Russell Wilson early, often and hard, and they struck out on all of those. They didn't do that. And Russell Wilson just basically did whatever he wanted back there. They settled for some field goals, and I think that they were a little bit 
conservative in their play calling, Seattle was, but they didn't need to get aggressive because their defense was just locked down on Detroit, and they knew that um, they were going to be able to pull out that game by just having Stephen Hoschka kick field goals. So uh, for the Lions, I think that their their biggest challenge is going to be that defensive line, getting that back shored up so they can get some pass rush, so they can get some pressure and make the offense change what they're doing. Because as far as adjustments go, I, I know that people really like the hammer on Jim Calls, all me included, about just no visible adjustment from first half to second half. But the other teams didn't really have to adjust because they knew what they were going to do already. And they would do they would basically run the first half as we know what works and what doesn't work. In the second half, we'll just use more of what works because the Lions didn't have anything to, to pick from on the defensive side is bringing somebody else in or making matchups with, with guys that they have on the bench or that are sitting there waiting to play. So uh, the Lions defensively really were disappointing uh, overall, and I think that's what they're going to need to target as they go into next season because the offense around Matt Stafford, he's going to make that offense average to slightly above average just by his own play as long as he plays at that same level or at least close to that same level. The defense is what's got to help him out, and they they very rarely help them out this year. Um, turnovers were, were hard to come by for them at times. Um, I didn't really like uh, a lot of their strategy, especially when it pertains to red zone defense. I didn't really like how they ran a lot of those. And just overall, their defense was disappointing. And I think that Terrell Austin, who last year, people were talking about him interviewing for head coaching jobs. He did interview for a couple this year. <coughs> Excuse me. He really suffered this year. And partly because of personnel, but partly just the schemes that they were running were just not effective, and, and they weren't changing them, and they were just trying to do – they were kind of being bullheaded and do what they could. Um, but th- that's where I would go when you talk about the Lions, just defensively. They need to really get that defensive line operating and need to, to shore that up because that was their biggest pain point that I saw. Shifting to uh, Tigers, uh, uh, the, they now have um, Brian Osmus in, in his uh, final year, his option year. It's uh, it, it, the Detroit Free Press is uh, George Sibyl calls it a make make or break season for Brad Osmus. Um, I, I know the Tigers were floundered with injuries late in the late in the season, especially in the second half, but. Um, and also, they were just one game short of the postseason, but um, still, Brad Osmus still does not improve very much. He improved a little bit, but um, still kept kept uh, using uh, Tyler Collins as his center, number one center fielder, and Tyler Collins slipping off the fans one time, and, and he, uh, he, almost, he almost never produced, especially – Especially in the second half of the season, on offense, and that that's been a problem. And the Tigers in the earlier in the off season traded away Cameron Maven for a useless pitcher in exchange with the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. Well, and that, that's been that's been it. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you look at the Tigers, what do you think is their biggest problem? Because you could literally go through each 
section. You could go through the lineup, go into the starting pitching, go into the bullpen, in dissecting the lineup in the infield, outfield, and in catcher. I mean, at some point during the season, don't you think they probably could have pointed to any one of those and said, boy, we really need to, to, to improve that? Well, uh, there's the there's there's uh, there was there looked to be only a race between uh, two, pl- just uh, Tyler Collins and, and uh, Jacoby Jones. Since the uh, Tigers waived Anthony Ghost, he cleared waivers and they optioned him to the Triple A Toledo Mudhens because of not only of, of his lack of production but of his, of his behavior in general with the Mudhens last season. Um, and, and now I'm hearing that Mike Matuk, at age 27, is now a Detroit Tiger. He's going to make it a he's going to make it a new three three rate three way race for the Tigers center fielder position. I, I'm not I, I haven't looked at Matuk's numbers yet, but um, but um. He, at least he could uh, make a case where he can uh, top Tyler Collins for that for that set, number one center fielder position. I'm look, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to look at it, into it right now. Well, we, I've got his stats up here, and you know, oh, yeah. for 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 I'm looking at fan graphs. So when I look at it, he, he doesn't have a lot of major league experience, and that's one of the things that's kind of concerning. He got some time in 15 there, and then last year he had uh, some time as well. But, I mean, he's, he's been in the raised system up until this year. He was in the raised system since 2011. And you would have thought with the state that the Rays were in, especially last season, he may have gotten a little bit more of an opportunity. I think that's where people get hung up is they look at what the Rays had last year, especially in the outfield, and they think, gee, why couldn't that guy play in the – I mean, if he's this good or if he's supposedly this good – I know he battled some injuries last year, but if he was supposedly this good, well, why wasn't he playing for them on a more consistent basis? And he was in Durham in 15 and then most of – and part of last year, um, like I said, he battled some injuries there. But uh, in the short stints that he did have, um, you know, he's got a relatively high uh, strikeout rate. Um, his bad, his bad episode so batting average balls in play um, leveled out to right around the, the league average of 300. Um, he was a re- relatively strong slugging percentage, um, but then last year it really fell off. He didn't have a very good hitting year last year as opposed to his 15 stint in, in the major leagues. Um, and then his defensive ratings were really kind of subpar. He, he had a negative war defensively um, and also overall last year. Um, so I think that really Detroit was looking at the 15, 2015 that he had rather than last year battling some injuries and playing for a, a less than stellar raised team. And I think that's where they're looking at for him. And <clears throat> if they can just get the production he had in 2015 when it comes to offense, I think they would be pleased with that acquisition. They didn't really have to give up a whole lot to get him. 
Um, they didn't pick up Cameron Maven's option, which was part of the whole salary dump that Detroit was starting to undergo. And I saw that today Elavil was quoted as saying that Detroit will not be above the tax threshold in 2018. Whether that be, remains to be seen or not, uh, we'll find out, I guess, next year. <laughs> but um, That's what Elavil has planned. Yeah. yeah, well, I don't think he has it planned. I think, <laughs> I think the person that signs his checks has it planned. But, um, yeah, you look at Matuk and uh, you're hoping to get – you kind of catch catch a little lightning in the bottle with him. Maybe you can get some good production. I don't think Tyler Collins is a major league player. I think Jacoby Jones, even though he played a lot of infield last year, they still have him penciled in as an outfielder. I think that he might go back to the infield this year just because of the fact that they might have to trade Ian Kinsler to get that salary number to where it needs to be. And they're woefully thin at the infield positions, especially in the farm system. And Jacoby Jones probably could fill in at short or second uh, to be a stopgap replacement if that were to happen. So I think that Jacoby Jones should probably make the opening day roster just because they're going to need somebody that's flexible. Um, and I think that they're going to need also that to prepare for J.D. Martinez not being there, especially if the, the, the tone and the culture of that team is going to be to lessen themselves, to, to relieve themselves of salary rather than to add. So it's going to be an interesting year for Detroit because you have Osmus, who's in the last year of his contract, and he had a chance to prove himself with much better rosters in 2000 in 14 and 2015 and didn't do it. And now he's going to have to really work hard with a a little bit less talented roster than he was available or that he was given in his first two seasons. And I think that a lot of people would agree that, uh, you know, the Tigers are on the back end of that curve where you have guys like Cabrera and Verlander who aren't getting younger. J.D. Martinez is probably going to ask for a lot of money and they probably aren't going to want to give it to him. So this is the point where you say, okay, are we really going to make one last try at this? Or do they get into the season, and especially if they start slow, do they start selling off as many assets as they can and start that slow, painful rebuilding that people, you know, apparently, according to Ken Holland, people don't want to hear about and don't want to go through? Because they're, they're cowards. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, the Tigers, it's a little bit different. I mean, they've, I mean, they were so bad. I mean, I mean, I've been a Tigers fan. Much, probably the, out of all the teams that I root for, probably the Tigers are the longest one. I mean, I'm 37, and I can remember back to even '84, where I mean, I remember some of those things very, very briefly and very, very faintly. But I mean, I've probably been the Tigers fan as long as anything else. And I mean, when I was in high school and college, that was just not fun. I mean, you're looking at basically from 1989 until 2002. Oh yeah. That was just it was just an abyss. I mean, it was just it was just a very dark and depressing time to be a Tigers fan, and people are kind of scared of that because they've had success now. They had a growth period where they got back to the playoffs, got made some World Series showed some progress, but now they're on the decline again. And like you said, you know, Ken Holland and, and, and company, cowards, afraid, you know, unsure. 
whatever adjective you want to try to put onto it, I think Tigers fans are a little bit less receptive to that rebuilding. And I think it's simply because they feel that they can get to a point that the Red Wings should have gotten to, which is rebuild on the fly, try to retool as you go through the, the, the twilights of Cabrera and Verlander's career and try to make sure that you have a backup plan rather than firing your manager or at least not picking you know, picking him back up, creating a bunch of guys and really just trying to start from scratch in 2018 because that's the prevailing attitude that we're getting from Alavila and the, the, the Tigers front office is that 2018, they're not going to be spending any money. And that means no J.D. Martinez. That, that may mean no Ian Kinsler. And that's really going to be hard to replace those two players on that roster and be a competitive ball, to, ball club. Absolutely. Well, uh, well, we're running out of time for uh, Lewis Tenor, so I'm going to turn it over to him real quick. He's going to do a short version of uh, the score standings and headlines. Lewis, take it away. Sorry about that. Okay. No, um, that's our fault. All right. I'm going to st- I'll start with the uh, NBA. There's not a lot of games on the NBA uh, schedule tonight. Thursday usually is a light night. So I'm going to start like this. As soon as I get this cockeyed thing ready. Ah, here we go. And it goes like this. All right. Here we go. Um, Thunder over the Mavericks, 109-98. Harrison Barnes, 31 points, two rebounds, two assists. Russell Westbrook did not have a triple-double tonight, though. He's had eight rebounds, three assists, but he still scored 45 points. Now, well, everybody has an off night now and then. <laughs> uh, Pistons are up. Uh, Pacers over the Wolves, 109-103. Jeff Tehege, 20 points, 13 assists, 8 rebounds. Carl Anthony Towns, 33 points, 10 rebounds, 4 assists. Nuggets over the Suns, 127-120. Eric Blitzo, 28 points, 4, 5 assists, 4 rebounds. Nikolai Jokic, 28, 29 points, 14 rebounds, and 8 assists. And the Jazz, no, the Lakers over the Jazz, Oh, sorry, Jazz of Lakers, 98, 96, 88, yeah. Uh, Lewis Williams, 20 points, 5 rebounds, 1 assist. Gordon Hayward, 24 points, 3 rebounds, and 2 assists. Okay, let's go to the standings, if we bang. Cleveland still leads the East, 30 to 14, uh, 30 and 14. Three games back at the Raptors, 28 and 18. Celtics, 27 and 18, three and a half back. Four back are the Hawks, 27 and 19. Wizards are 25 and 25 and a half back. Seven and a half back are the Pacers, 23 and 22. At 23 and 23 are the Hornets, eight back, and the Bulls, 23 and 24, eight and a half back. Outside looking in are the Bucks at 21 and 24, nine and a half back. Pistons are 10 back at 21 and 25. Knicks are 20 and 27, 11 and a half back. Sixers, 13 back at 17 and 27. Orlando, 18-29, 13 and a half back. The Heat, 16-30, 15 back. And the Nets are a pathetic, 9-36, 21 and a half back. Good Lord. Warriors, 39-7. Spurs are 2 and back at 36-9. Rockets, 34-15 at 
six and a half back. Clippers, 30 and 17, nine and a half back. Jazz, 10 back at 30 and 18. Thunder, 28 and 19, 11 and a half back. Uh, Grizzlies, 12 and a half back at 27 and 20. And the Nuggets, a distant 20 and 25, 18 and a half back. And the dump heap in the West, the rest of it goes like this. Blazers are 20 and 27, 19 and a half back. Kings, 20 and a half back at 18 and 27. 21 back are the Pelicans at 18 and 28. Wolves, 17 and 29, 22 back. Mavericks, 16 and 30, 23 back. Suns, 24 back at 15 and 31. And the Lakers, a dead last, 16, 34, 25 back. Yeah. Uh, okay, that's the basketball. Now over to the – I'm going to do college basketball, yeah. Uh, Oregon beat Utah 73-67. Dylan Brooks, 19 points, 3 rebounds, 2 assists. Kyle Kuzma, 18 points, 9 rebounds, 1 assist. Uh, St. Mary's over San Francisco, 66-46. Charles Minland, 30, 13 points, 1 rebound. Emmett Nahr, 18 points, 6 assists, and 1 rebound. The Zags over San Diego, 79-43. Owen Carter, 12 points, 2 rebounds, 2 assists. Nigel Williams-Goss, 25 points, 5 rebounds, 5 assists. Arizona over Washington State, 79-62. Connor Clifford, 19 points, 5 rebounds, 2 assists. Lori Markinen, 16 points, 13 rebounds, 1 assist. North Carolina over Virginia Tech. 91-72, Seth Allen, 19 points, 5 rebounds, 2 assists. Justin Jackson, 26 points, 4 rebounds, and 3 assists. Xavier, uh, Cincinnati over Xavier, 86-76. Trevor Bullitt, 40 points, 4 rebounds, 1 assist. Jacob Evans, 21 points, 7 rebounds, 3 assists. Uh, quickly to the schedule here. I mean, quickly as possible. Um, excluding the top 25. St. Francis over Wagner, 62-67. Brooklyn over Sacred Heart, 60-57. FDU over over St. Francis, Brooklyn, 79-73. Hofstra, uh, Drexel over Hofstra, 81-80, just barely. Uh, St. Peter's, Clobbert Maris, 81-65. And uh, San Clever BYU, 7668. Uh, Pepperdine over Portland, 78 to 60. Eastern, oh, did I see? Oh, that was Eastern Washington over Montana, 7260. I thought it said Eastern Michigan. My eyes deceived me. Okay. And Nebraska, and Nebraska no, Northwestern over Nebraska, 7361. And I mentioned and the squeaker Manhattan over Niagara, seventy sixty nine. Wow, that was close. All right, now we go to the yeah, go to the women's game. If I can get to that now. Oh joy, I got it. <laughs> okay, we'll do the top twenty five rankings, and there was a lot going on in the women's game tonight. Um. Such as this. Okay, Maryland over 
Illinois, uh, 9449. Uh, Kimbrough had 14 points, 9 rebounds, 2 assists. Alex Wing, uh, Wittinger, 21 points, 7 rebounds, 2 assists. South Carolina over Georgia, 62-44. Aja Wilson, 19 points, 11 rebounds, 3 assists. Haley Clark, 8 points, 6 rebounds, and 3 assists. Florida State over Georgia Tech, 69-63. Ema Wright, 14 points, 5 rebounds, 2 assists. Kalon Pug, 23 points, 7 rebounds, 1 assist. Duke over Notre Dame, 62-58. Lexi Brown, 22 points, 2 rebounds, 4 assists. Rihanna Turner, 25 points, 12 rebounds, 2 steals. Louisville over Clemson, 60-46. Maisha Hayes-Allen, Hines-Allen, excuse me, 16 points, 7, re- 7 rebounds, 1 assist. Aliyah Collier, 10 points, 11 rebounds, 4 assists. Ohio State over Minnesota, 88-76. Kelsey Mitchell, 25 points, 5 rebounds, 2 assists. Kari Wagner, 34 points, 6 rebounds, 1 assist. Miami over North Carolina, 188. Harris Kane, a key. 26 points, 4 rebounds, 4 assists. Jessica Thomas, 24 points, 7 assists, and 2 rebounds. North Carolina over Pitt, 55-42. Brianna, Wa- Brianna Wise, 11 points, 4 rebounds, and a block. Jennifer Ma- uh, Maturin, 13 points, 5 rebounds, 2 assists. I hope I'm reading that name right. Uh, Virginia, Te- Virginia clobbered Virginia Tech, 76-27. Reagan McGarity. A measly eight points, ten rebounds, one assist. Jacqueline Wildeby, Wildeby, eighteen points, five rebounds, two assists. Two words, no contest. Uh, young uh, Green Bay over Green Bay over Youngstown, Ohio, eighty-four fifty-one. Jessica Lindstrom, nineteen points, twelve rebounds, one assist. India Benjamin, nine points, six assists, and one rebound. All right, um, that takes care of the basketball scores. Now, onto the ice. And it goes like this. Okay. Um, oh, I have, to, I have to update this for a second. Excuse me. All right. As the score of all games have now ended, I believe, uh, Bruins over the Penguins 4-3. to three. Hang on a second while I... Thank you. Um... Benjamin Machard lifts the Bruins in the win. Uh, Capitals over the Devils 5-2. Kinsensoff scores twice. Ovenchkin once as they take care of that. Islanders over Canadians 3-1. Ladd scores twice to give the Islanders the win. Flyers top the Maple Leafs 2-1. Get a third straight victory. Oh, yuck. Uh, Kings blanked the Hurricanes 3-0, and they scored late three goals in the third to beat the Hurricanes. Uh, Gardot uh, helps the Flames score in overtime with the Senators 3-2. Panthers over the Lightning uh, 2-1. Marshall, Marshall uh, scores the game winner. Smith scores twice in the third to give the Yahoos, a.k.a. the Predators, the win 4-3. to three. That's my little joke, in case you know that. Uh, Nina, uh, Nina Ryder, uh, 
helps the Wild cruise against the Blues five to one. A little helps the Jets over the Blackhawks five to three. Patrick Sharp uh, two goals helped the Stars over the Sabres four to three. And my page just went down a bit. Yep. All right, there we go. Um, and the Coyotes uh, over the Canucks. Three nothing. Smith gets thirty first career shutout in the win, and Beckera scores two for the Oilers as they beat the Sharks four to one. All right, so now we'll check the standings here, and they go like this. Oh, okay. In the East, the the Canadians are twenty nine fourteen and seven sixty five points. The Senators, 26, 15, and 6, 58 points. Boston is 25, 21, and 6, 56 points. Toronto is at 55 points at 23, 15, and 9. Florida, 21, 19, and 10, 52 points. Lightning is 50 points at 22, 22, and 6. Buffalo is 20, 19, and 9, 49 points. And Detroit is 20, 20, and 9, also 49 points. In the Metropolitan Division, excuse me, Washington, 33, 10, 6, 72 points. Blue Jackets, 32, 12, and 4, 68 points. By the way, Tortiella will not play, will not coach the All-Star game due to a family issue. I just found that out. Pittsburgh is 30, 13, and 5 at 65 points. Rangers at 63 points with 31, 17, and 1. Philadelphia is 56 points at 25, 19, and 6. Uh-oh. Islanders are 51 points at... 21, 17, and 9. Carolina is 21, 20, and 7, 49 points. And the Devils, 20, 21, 9, 49 points. My girlfriend's not happy. Minnesota in the Central and the West is 32 and 5, 11 and 5 at 69 points. Chicago is 13, 30, 16 and 5, 65 points. Nashville, 24, 17, 8, 56 points. Blues are 24, 20, and 5, 53 points. Dallas is 20, 20 and 10, 50 points. Winnipeg, 50 points at 23, 25 and 4. And the Avalanche, forget it. 13, 31, 2, 28 points. Forget it. They have no chance. Yeah. Pacific, Sharks, 31, 17 and 2, 64 points. Also at 64 points are the Oilers, 28, 15 and 8. Ducks, not far behind at 27, 15 and 9, 63 points. Calgary, 53 points, 25, 24, and 3. Kings, 24, 21, 4, 52 points. Vancouver, 23, 21, 6, 52 points. And Arizona, 16, 26, and 6, 38 points. Okay, now for some news headlines of the day. I'll try to keep this brief as I possibly can. Bro. Okay. Um, I'm putting in the late night... Um, Headlines for now, since while I had time. Uh, the Clippers and the Knicks are in a trade for, in a trade for Carmelo Anthony without getting the big three, Chris Paul, um, Blake Griffin, and DeAndre Jordan. And Mama still has no rings. Oh, my. Uh, Knicks will be prohibited from Griffin with Rose still on the roster since teams cannot have two designated max rookies on their roster. This is from the this is from the new CBA agreement. Um, Gordon Hayward and 
DeAndre Jordan are the first NBA All-Star reserves. Although they'll have that. Uh, Cleveland is going to host the 2019 All-Star Game. The AP announced that yesterday, and a press conference will be held later the, later today, like maybe this afternoon. Stephen Drew signed a one-year deal with the Nationals with about $3.5 million, and this year could earn $12.5 million in bonuses. And as I said, Tordiella is out with a family issue for the All-Star Game. It's a tough coach, too. Oh, Monmouth over Fairfield, 60-53. to 53. Hey, my sister went to Monmouth, you know. Um, as we move on here. Okay, Coach K. Krzyzewski uh, of Duke is recovering from back surgery, holds a meeting at his home, and bans players from the locker room, and is prohibiting them from wearing Blue Devils Appeal after coming up lost to NC State. He's done this sort of thing before. And the ban will remain in effect until Duke players start living up to standards of the, of the program of the school. Players, players then hold a players-only meeting, as this was their third loss in the last four games. Boy, that's tough. Onward we go. All right. Uh, LeBron James and owner Dan Gilbert are at odds at that uh, the um, at spending, Cavs have a payroll of 127 million and uh, 54 million on luxury taxes, and have spent more than any other team in the last three years. And James has been growing frustrated with the team's money decisions lately. <laughs> I don't know why you're in first place by three and a half games and bound to make the playoffs. What are you complaining about, you big dope? What a jerk. Seahawks assistant coach Rocky. Seto is leaving the team, and get this, he's not leaving to join another football program, he's leaving to join the ministry. That's right, he's leaving to become a, to become a minister. Uh, he started out as a defensive coach for under Pete Carroll in 2010, then promoted to assistant defensive backs, and then passing game coordinator. I wish you luck. Tiger Woods is back playing, at the farm, uh, playing golf, first time in a year and a half at the Farmers Insurance Open, but shot a miserable 76 in the opening round, and Justin Rose is your leader at the end of the first day of competition. I think it was with a 65. Eh, what'd you expect? Um, all right. Both Williams sisters will advance to the Australian Open final. Here we go again. Um, Australian... Roger Federer beat Stan Wanaka in five sets to go to the men's semifinals. Dwayne Wade and Jimmy Butler come down hard on the Bulls as their team is at their latest loss against uh, showing, uh, showing criticisms that they don't play hard enough. LeBron James met with the Cavaliers GM David Griffin as they now have lost six of their last eight games. Griffin stated that his team, we believe in this team, has a deep level, but must be better from within and play better. Griffin met with James one-on-one about his comments before Tyron Lue addressed the team. Uh, their only goal was to win a title, of course. Griffin would not comment on the meeting with LeBron. And Russell Westbrook now has a total of 60 triple-doubles in his career. Wow. 
Uh, the NFL and the NFL Players Association were warned about following orders of concussion protocol as a hit by the Miami quarterback in their playoff loss to the Steelers. Uh, they were fined but not penalized, but if further actions continue, a possibility, excuse me, both the possibility of review determined that the protocol was strictly enforced and the Dolphins must engage where their staff is in full review of the protocol. Any further violations could result in fines assessed, assisted against the club. Uh, Moore was injured in the January 8th game, was up two plays and bleeding from the mouth, but was able to return to the game. But I think that's just too quickly to do so. Yeah. Um, okay, um, I believe my notes are, yes, my notes are finished, and that's it for me. Okay, it's back to you. All right, thanks, uh, Lewis. Uh, my pleasure. Well, Buck, it's uh, it, it's been a pleasure having you on. Um, what what um, t- what t- what day are you available again? Uh, we're not doing a post game uh, Friday night. Okay. Um, you know, truthfully, Wednesdays and Thursdays are probably my better days. Um, so either one of those works. Um, Thursdays are usually the better days of those two. So Thursdays are, if you had to pin it down, um, my first choice would be Thursday, and then the second choice would be Wednesday. Mm-hmm. As I'm looking at the schedule here, there's only uh, one game on Wednesday when the Pistons play the New Orleans Pelicans, or 18 and 28. Yeah, that's that, that's it. Thursday, okay. Thursday, there, Thursday, there's. Uh, Nothing actually. Okay. So, well, uh, we'll I mean, Wednesday. I, uh, yeah, we could do Wednesday. I mean, it'd probably be pretty truncated. You know, obviously NHL's on break. Um, only one game going on. Um, you know, we can really dive into some weekend stuff because we know that uh, there'll be plenty of college basketball and uh, the Pistons. We, you know, that's the only game we really have to go over. So. Um, and we were a lot of stuff we hit tonight. So, um, you know, yeah, exp- expand upon the, the Pistons and see where they're at next week, and also uh, what happened to Michigan, Michigan State over the next uh, six days. Be pretty uh, interesting to see where they end up, and that should be a pretty good uh, topic. Mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, absolutely. Yep. Michigan and Michigan State, we can talk about that on Wednesday, too. Uh, yeah, the Red Wings' uh, next game is uh, Tuesday at home against the Devils, as I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. But uh, after, after that, the, the Pistons play on Wednesday at the Palace against the Pelicans of New Orleans. So, with we can we can talk about the Pistons, Michigan, Michigan State, the Red Wings, pl- playing, those, playing those New Jersey Devils. Um, yeah, I can, I can probably always uh, postpone Tuesday's uh, podcast because I'm in, because I'm in mid-state uh, Tuesday. Check my schedule. Uh, twenty, twenty. Oh, oh, wait. I, I have, a, I'm not. A, I, I've actually have Tuesday completely off. Oh, 
because uh, there are no there are no games on on Tuesday as far as I'm concerned. Next Tuesday, that's uh, January 31st. There's no January 31st uh, broadcast on WMLN 15:20 a.m. in Alma of any high school game whatsoever. Hmm. Wow. So, um, so I so I guess I will do a podcast on Tuesday night. Okay, I can handle that. Uh huh. Yep, but uh, Wednesday's your uh, next best uh, availability. Yep, yep. Um, I can handle Wednesday. I can handle Wednesday. Yep. All right, so I'll talk to you on Wednesday at ten thirty. Okay. Yeah, if anything comes up, just uh, PM me. But yeah, there's no mind doing that. Absolutely. Definitely. Thanks. All right, so. Uh, we will not we will not be on the air on talk show until Saturday night at eleven for episode one eighty eight. So until then, for Lewis Tenor and Buck Gino the third, this is Taylor Phillips signing off. You can like our like our Facebook page, the Michigan Sports Truth, and join our Facebook group, the Michigan Sports Truth. Follow Buck Gino on Twitter at Buck Gino I I I. And follow me on Twitter at DT2Phillips. TTFN, ta-ta for now. Bon appetit. Good night, folks. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, You won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.